that said Jesus Christ is coming. Really, the first reference to Christmas was right there in the Garden of Eden. And God said that he was going to take care of, of the difficulties in our lives. And today we're going to be in Genesis 22. And, and as we think of Genesis 22, maybe some would say that's not a Christmas text. But by God's grace, I hope today we'll see that it is. It's a very encouraging text. It's very relevant to the topic of Christmas. Not too long ago, my daughter Julie had a glow stick. And uh, she was looking at this glow stick like, how do you turn this thing on? And uh, I explained to her, you've got to break it. She just couldn't understand breaking something makes it work, you know. And I said, well, when you break it, the chemicals run together. And I'm not sure how it all works chemically, but somehow those chemicals run together and it makes the stick glow. And that's how a glow stick works. If it's going to be any value to you, you've got to break it. And that just goes the opposite of our way of thinking. If something's broken, we think it doesn't work anymore. And in a very similar sense, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Bible tells us He had to be broken before the value of His work through a perfect life, His death on the cross, His bodily resurrection out of the tomb on the third day. Jesus had to be broken so that we could be made whole. Our theme for the Christmas season is hope of the broken world. Hope is the, the big idea of it all. And it's, it's amazing to me that the hope of a broken world is a Savior who is willing to be broken for you and for me. That's a God of love. He's a great God. He was broken. Now, I need to point out, and this is going to come into play later in our study today, that, that although this process through which, which Jesus went to save us was a process that involved breaking, the Bible is very emphatic, and it needs us to know that none of his bones were broken in the process. None of them. The writer of Psalms in Psalm 34 said this, He keepeth all his bones, none of them is broken. The Bible is very emphatic that Jesus didn't have a bone that was broken. If we were to take the time today to go to John's Gospel to read the occasion when Jesus died on the cross, we could read in John 19, verses 31 through 37, of the time after Jesus had been crucified, where the Roman soldiers would come along, and it was customary, after someone had suffered, they thought a, an appropriate length of time, they would break their legs. And if your legs were broken, you couldn't, while hanging on a cross, lift yourself up to breathe. It was a way to bring somebody's life to a rapid end. And the Bible tells us there in John that, that the guards came and they saw the thieves who were hung on either side of Jesus Christ. They broke the legs of one thief. They broke the legs of the other thief. But when they came to Jesus himself, they noticed that they did not need to break his legs because he had already died. The Bible tells us again in John 19 that when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. The Bible continues by saying this, For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone should not be broken. But make no mistake about it. Jesus himself, he was broken. When the Apostle Paul was teaching the believers in the church of Corinth about the Lord's Supper, we sometimes call it communion, he shared what it was that Jesus said when he taught. And in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 24, the Bible says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Jesus said, I don't ever want you to forget. Remember, I've been broken. This one who is whole, was broken so that we who are broken could be made whole. Think of that. Now, I don't know what fractures or fissures you have going on in your life today. I know this. We all have something going on, don't we? Every one of us. 
the greatest break is that break between mankind and, and a holy God. He's perfect, we're not, and that creates a, a problem because of sin. But maybe you've come to church today and you're, you're bringing some breaks in a relationship or a difficulty you're going through in one way or another. We all have a story that's unique to us at this moment. Let me share with you. Jesus Christ, God the Son, was broken so that broken things could be made whole. This is a very hope-filled thought. From the book of Genesis in the front of the Bible to the book of the Revelation in the end of the Bible, there's really one symbol that pictures Jesus Christ. And it's a lamb. It's been said there's a blood-red thread that runs through the Bible, from the book of Genesis to the book of the Revelation, that shares with us that great work, the breaking of Christ, so to speak, as He is the Lamb of God. Our last study, a little more background than normal this morning, in our last study, we went back about 4,000 years before Jesus was born there in the Garden of Eden. And today we're going to just fast forward only a little bit to about 2,211 years before the birth of Christ. And we're going to meet a man on a mountain by the name of Abraham and his son by the name of Isaac. And uh, if you'll allow me today to do a little more kind of explaining and introducing characters than I normally do, we're going to get to the end and see how it all can be a great encouragement to us. And uh, if you could use a little encouraging, why don't you join me in standing this morning, okay? That's my way of saying everybody stand up. Uh, I've discovered in life you can't, dis- you can't encourage the wrong person. We all need encouragement, don't we? And we're going to look today to the book of Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read together. The Bible says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Now I'm going to read on. Uh, I know there have been some that have kind of had a hard time with the thought that God would tempt somebody. And of course, we think of a temptation only as, as a negative. The idea used in this context is more of a test. God is the teacher, if I can use that analogy, he possesses the prerogative of giving students tests if he sees fit. The purpose of a test is never for the value of the teacher. Teachers don't give a test hoping they'll fail all their students so they can find validation themselves and say, I knew I was smarter than these crazy students, okay? That that wouldn't be a very good thing for a teacher to do. What a test does, prepares a student, a teacher prepares a student, brings a test so that the, the student then has an opportunity to find out where they are against the backdrop of where they need to be. The value of a test is for the student. Now, friends, look here. What we're going to study today, it's key we get this down right away. This passage we're reading is an occasion where God brought a test into the life of Abraham for Abraham's benefit. He's trying to help Abraham learn some things. All right. And so God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, behold, here I am. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. And offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now, again, I'll read on. God tells Abraham, listen how he says it. Hey, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son. You know, Isaac, he could not be more emphatic here. God's making a point. This is a test for the benefit of the student, not the teacher. And he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only one. You know Isaac. And he said, I want you to offer him as a burnt offering 
Now, that's exactly what God says. Death. Okay? Verse 3. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Now, it's important in verse 5 that we understand Abraham told his guys, Look, you guys stay here. I'm going to go yonder. You all understand yonder? Okay. Any of you from the south? All right. That's how southern people say, Hey, I'm going over there. Okay. And uh, so Abraham, he said, I'm going yonder. You guys stay here. Now listen to what he said. This is key. He said, because me and Isaac, me and Isaac, we're going yonder and coming back. The implication is, Abraham said, me and my son that God told me to kill, we're going and coming back. Abraham knew something about, about this moment and that we're coming back. And, and, and the Bible says, so they went. Uh, verse 6, Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. So everything was needed for a sacrifice. Verse 7, Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire. you got to have fire, Dad. And he said, And the wood. you got to have wood. But he says, But where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told them of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his knife and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Now I'm going to read on, of course, uh, male lamb. God will provide himself a lamb. And then he turns around and here's a lamb, a male lamb, a ram uh, caught in, in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram. And offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Jehovah-Jireh is a name of God that means the Lord will provide. And Abraham learned that. But I want you to go back to the end of verse 7. And Isaac asked a pretty pertinent question here. Inappropriate question. A question I think we all would have asked had we been in his position. In the end of verse 7, here's the question. Where is the lamb? Where's the lamb? That's what he wanted to know. And uh, I want us to think on this together. And uh, I think we can be helped today. All right? Uh, I'm going to pray and ask God to help me teach. And while I'm praying in your heart, why don't you ask the Lord, Lord, help me to get in this text today and, and to get something out of it that can help me. All right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning, for the opportunity we've had already to have great uh, times together earlier and in this service now again I pray you'll help us and may we learn and grow and Lord I pray because of our time together today that the faith of believers in this room that it would be strengthened and Lord for those perhaps that don't yet know you as a savior that today their faith would be established it would begin we love you we need you we ask this prayer in Jesus name amen thank you, you may be seated
The atheists of a generation ago were content to consider Christianity a fable and people of faith mostly well-intentioned, but people who had been duped. Just kind of ignoramuses. Christians were perceived as naive and silly, but more or less harmless. Things have changed dramatically as the time for Christ's return have drawn closer. No longer are Christians considered by some as just naive and harmless. They're really considered as malicious and dangerous. Popular atheists, and and many of these you've heard of uh, in, in contemporary books. Maybe you've seen clips on the news of various ones talking, as I have. But but the most popular of the day, Dawkins and Hitchens, have, have ratcheted up their attacks to the point that religion in general, and Christians in particular, have been singled out as really the source of the problems in the world today. As I say that, I want you to understand that it does not discourage me. In fact, it comforts me to know that the Bible tells me that before the return of Jesus Christ, that things of this nature would increase. And this, if anything, strengthens my faith and it validates the truths of God's Word. In 2 Peter 3 and 3, the Bible says, knowing this first, there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. It's been said that some people can't win for losing. Let me tell you, if you're a person of faith, you need to understand something that you can't lose for winning. You're on the winning side. If you know Jesus is your personal Savior, history's been with us, the future is secure in the Lord, and I want you to be comforted today and encouraged today that regardless what scoffers would say of the faith you hold so dear in Jesus Christ, you can be encouraged. Jesus is coming again. Now, one of the claims of of atheism in our day is that religion has served as the basis for so many of the wars in the history of the world, and if there were no people of faith, then the world, by and large, would be a peaceful place. Everyone would get along so well. Dr. David Jeremiah, the pastor of Shadow Mountain Community Church in El Cajon, recently did an excellent job debunking this myth. He went into much more detail than I will just in this introduction today. But he talked about men by the names of Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin and others who, friends, were not people of faith, okay? And uh, yes, there have been some people of antiquity who hijacked faith for personal and political reasons, but by and large, people of faith have been peace-loving faith, who've been an asset to any community that's welcomed them. And I want you to understand, if you were to study the history of the world, you'd find the most persecuted people group in the entire history of mankind has been people of faith. More than 50 million believers have given their lives for nothing more than trusting Jesus as their personal Savior. As these attacks are increasing, uh, we find that it's spreading. And, and, and today there are very many who hear claims without much basis, and it leads them to a false conclusion. Let me share with you, if I may, a claim that was made by an author, Dawkins. He says that God is a moral monster. That's his statement. And I want to I share with you his view of God, if I may. He said the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He is jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's, that's the conclusion. Now, I think it's helpful for us to understand that that's what people have heard and what some people today are believing 
The reason I share all this with you is because there's one text more than, ever, uh, more than others it seems people go to to prove that God's not a good God, not a loving God, not a kind God, not a gracious God. It's the verses we read together a moment ago when we were standing. More than any other text, this text that I read today that I believe asserts the goodness of God and the love of God is the text that people point to. And the rationale goes something like this. If God is good and kind and loving and gracious and benevolent, why would he ever have asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? And and that is a question that is a fair question. It's a question that can be dealt with from Scripture. But if you come to this text Without reading what happens before and after and gaining the context, you'll bring a biased approach that leads to what I believe to be the wrong conclusion. We find here the goodness of God. It's a text that includes the prophecy of Christ's birth, a reference to Christmas. It speaks of hope to the broken. If you have your notes nearby today, I want us to see, first of all, as we look to this text, we see the request. The text begins, God is talking to Abraham and he asks him, here's the, here's the request. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom you love, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I'll tell thee of. Now the, requ- the request was clear. Abraham, you're going to sacrifice your son. But I want you to know that Abraham knew some things. A study of Abraham's life would help us to understand that Abraham, he knew some things. First of all, Abraham understood some things about God, and he knew that according to the laws of God, it would not be consistent with what he knew of God, that it would be required of him to take the, uh, the life of his son. Abraham would have had an understanding of the nature of God. Abraham waited for a son his entire married life, and, and God promised that great legacy would come from his family. The Bible in the book of Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2 says this, And I will make of thee a great nation, he's speaking to Abraham. I'll bless you and I'll make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. Abraham had some understanding of the nature of God. They'd had a relationship. But Abraham also had an understanding that God had promised him that through him would come a great nation. Through him, many people would be born. And if Abraham now is a very old man with just one son to serve as his heir, there had to have been an understanding in his heart. God couldn't possibly take this young man completely out of my life. He's already given me his word. Finally, Abraham knew that his son would not be left on that mountain. Did Abraham know how it would all turn out? Sure. There's no way he would have known all that. But I believe Abraham thought, you know something? God's either going to spare my son or raise him again from the dead, but there's no way God's going to leave us both on this mountain. I believe Abraham believed that. Say, well, how would you know that Abraham believed that? You remember when we read a few moments ago in verse 5? Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. The understanding was me and Isaac are going to go worship, and me and Isaac are going to come back to you. Although Abraham did not understand everything that God was doing and preparing to do, he understood God, and he knew that he would never do anything to go back on his word or to go back on his promises or to break his nature. As this test came into the life of Abraham, he did not know so much, but he knew God. He knew God. The Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 28 says, And now, O Lord God, thou art God, that God, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servants. Abraham had an understanding. He said, You know something? I know this God. 
He's a good God. His words are true. He, he's already given me his promises. Friends, isn't it good to know that although we don't know what holds tomorrow, we know who holds tomorrow? We can have a confidence in God. And I don't know what trouble you're involved in today. I don't know what you're going to be getting into in life tomorrow, nor do I know what I'm going to be getting into in my life. But I want you to know something. When you wake up tomorrow, God's already been there. He's not a God that lives within the context of time. And Abraham, although he did not know all that God was doing, it was good for him that he had an understanding of a God who wouldn't break his word. He wouldn't go contrary to his nature. We see the request, but we have to see the resolve here. This was a test of faith for Abraham. The Bible makes that clear. It was a test of faith. And he passed it with flying colors. In the New Testament, there's a passage we call the Hall of Faith and kind of some of the names of the great people of faith and all of the Bible are included there. And in Hebrews 11 and verse 17, the Bible says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. You see, it was the promises that preceded the offering. And Abraham, based on faith, said, God, I don't exactly know what it is you're doing here, but I have confidence in you. I trust you, God. Therefore, because I believe in you, I'm going to have the resolve of faith to move ahead. With great resolve, Abraham entered into what would prove to be the greatest test of his life, an unimaginable test. And he obeyed God, and he offered his son to the Lord. And we read in our text, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. I want you to know something, friends. Our our tests in life will look very, very different. Abraham could have never imagined in a million years that that test would come to his life. And all of us in the course of time are going to go through tests that are unique to us. Many times tests we never could have imagined in a million years. And the way Abraham got through this test and passed with flying colors was by faith. Listen, you're not going to be able to look at the struggles you're going through and you're not going to be able to see where they're going to take you, figure them out completely, understand the nature of it all. There are going to have to be times in your life where by faith, you're going to have to trust God. Listen, our faith is not in faith. Some people just say, fake it till you make it. Just try harder, have trust and trust. And and Abraham said, you know, uh, my confidence is not in my faith. My confidence is in the God in whom my faith is plused. A place. It was a resolve, but it was the God in whom he was trusting that gave him the confidence to move forward. Our tests will look different, but we all will pass them the same way by faith. Hebrews eleven six says this: Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The reward comes from the God in whom our resolve is placed. So we see the request. All right. And then we see the resolve. But as we move on, I want us to see another point. And I've really hastened to this point because this is really the, the heart of it. We see here the realization. I want us to spend our time here. Abraham knew that God was doing something special, but Isaac had some questions. OK. He sees his dad. They got the wood. They got the fire. They got the knife. They're walking to go do a sacrifice. Isaac would have known what that meant. And he's looking around, and Isaac asks a question. I think it's a pretty reasonable question. Um, Verse 7 says this. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, "Uh, Father? And he said, Here here am I, my son. And and he said, "Um, Dad, behold the fire and the wood, but uh, hey, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for a burnt offering? How many think that was a pretty good question right about then, okay? It's like, uh, 
Dad, we're, we're, we're getting ready to worship. That involves sacrificing a lamb in, in our time. And, and I'm not finding a lamb here. And Abraham responded to his son's question by saying, My son, my son, he says, God will provide himself a lamb. And the construction of that is almost a little bit clumsy as we read through that. You say, well, God will provide himself a lamb. What is he saying? Let me tell you exactly what God is saying here. The statement was saying that God himself would provide himself a lamb. Let me tell you what that statement is saying. 2,211 years before the birth of Christ, that's God telling Abraham Christmas is coming. I'm going to provide myself a lamb. I'm going to send my son. He's going to be born. That was God's call. And that's what happened. In fact, the Bible tells us that Abraham and Isaac were standing on a mountain called Moriah. In the New Testament culture, New Testament culture that maybe we're more familiar with, that mountain was, was a mountain we would know better by the name of Calvary. Abraham standing there in the very place where Jesus one day would die with his son. And he says, son, God's already told me he himself is going to send himself. God is going to come to meet our need. He is going to be broken so that we who are broken can be made whole. The march leading from Christmas to Calvary was a developing revelation of God as a lamb. A lamb was a value, but the value came by way of wool or, or for meat. And so you have to kill the lamb to get the great value that it possesses. And, and in a similar sense, a sacrificial lamb was a value only as it was sacrificed and the blood was, was spread. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9.22 said this, He said, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. The sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament were were, were only able to temporarily cover sins. And so in Old Testament times, they would bring a lamb. They would sacrifice the lamb. The blood would provide a temporary covering. And, And of course, they were grateful for that. I think of Moses. For about 400 years, the Jews of of his time and earlier lived in captivity. And God said through a time called the Passover time, he said, I'm going to I'm going to provide for you by way of a lamb. He told Moses to have the people get a lamb, to sacrifice the lamb, to take the blood and to put it on the top and the sides of their doorpost in the shape of a cross. He said, I want you to do that. And that's that's how you will uh, find your provision. That's how you'll be saved. You'll be spared. In Exodus 12, we could find as, as the qualifications for this lamb are given. And the Bible tells us of this lamb, it was to be a male. It was to be a year old, not too old, not too young. It, it was to be without blemish. It was to have no broken bones. It was to be offered at dusk between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. The blood of the lamb was to be applied. And the sacrifice was only effective if the blood was personally applied. With all of that in mind, let's look to Jesus Christ. He was a male in the prime of life, not too old, not too young. He was perfect. 1 Peter 1 and 19 says this, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and spot. As we've seen, he had no broken bones, although he himself was broken. No broken bones. That was one of the qualifications. The Bible in the New Testament Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, tells us of the crucifixion of Christ. The Bible says he was crucified the third hour, which is nine in the morning. 
As the chronology of the crucifixion of Christ unfolds, of course, he didn't die immediately. And the Bible tells us that they went on and he didn't die until three hours of darkness that took place from noon to three. Therefore, Jesus would have died somewhere between three and five p.m. Jesus died, in fact, during the time of year known as the Passover. His sacrifice is available to all, but it is only effective for those who personally accept it. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. He was broken so that we who are broken can be made whole. His value to you is only as you personally receive it. I shared a minute ago, I was just so encouraged today to hear the testimony of a man who has been in church his whole life, who came to Coastline and and uh, through encounter with, with some of you, he, he was able to hear the salvation message. And I'm telling you, th- this man went to church faithfully for years and years and years. He knew of the provision of Jesus Christ. He just never had personally received Jesus Christ. He was able to make that personal, accepting the Lord as his Savior. The Lamb of God is seen in the prophecies of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 7, the Bible tells us of, of Jesus that he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Over 500 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah said, let me tell you about Jesus. He's like a lamb. He's like a lamb. He's going to be broken for us. On that first Christmas, the world experienced Jesus Christ was born. He's pictured from the front to the back of the Bible as a lamb. Is it surprising to us then to consider that Jesus was born in a barn? Where else would a lamb be born? It makes perfect sense. Laying in a manger? That sounds like a great place to be if I'm a little sheep. He's born in a barn. The first visitors that came to greet him after his birth, shepherds. In fact, the Bible says of these shepherds that they were abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. These were professional sheep watchers. And they were the first ones to greet Jesus Christ. There's no more fitting audience to come and welcome the arrival of Jesus Christ than shepherds. He, after all, from the beginning of the Bible to the very conclusion of the Bible is is spoken of as the Lamb. The Lamb. When John the Baptist introduced Jesus into his earthly ministry, he kind of made a statement. Everyone's attention had been gained. He's now going to essentially introduce Jesus Christ to his earthly ministry. And here's what John had to say in John 1 verse 29. He said, behold, that means look at him. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb came to be broken so that we who are broken could be made whole. Friends, again, I have no idea what fractures are going on in your life right now. I know the greatest breach that any person can have is a, is a life that's not united with God by way of a relationship. Jesus can take care of that. We go through struggles every day, don't we? 
We all have fears. We all have uh, hurts and habits and hang-ups, as some have said. We all go through struggles in life. And I'm not saying the presence of Jesus removes every, every trial from our life, but we get to go through life and join His presence with us along the way. And so as we think of Genesis 3 and Genesis 22, and we think of the Christmas story, I'm saying when you evaluate Scripture, it's a story of Mary who had a little lamb, who lived before his birth. Self-existent Son of God from heaven, he came to earth. Mary had the little lamb see him in yonder stall. Virgin-born Son of God to save man from the fall. Mary had the little lamb, obedient Son of God. Everywhere the Father led, his feet were sure to trod. Mary had the little lamb crucified on the tree. The rejected Son of God, he died to set men free. Mary had the little lamb, men placed him in the grave. Thinking they were done with him, to death he was no slave. Mary had the little lamb, ascended now is he. All work on earth is ended, our advocate to be. Mary had the little lamb, mystery to behold. From the Lamb of Calvary, a lion will unfold. When the, when the day star comes again, of this be very sure. It won't be a lamb-like silence, but with the lion's roar. Listen, friends, when I read a text like Genesis 22, I don't come to the conclusion that God is a moral monster. I come to the conclusion that He's a great God who loves us and spared no expense to bring us face to face with our need so that we could find the answer through a God who will himself provide himself as a lamb. I wonder when your life is broken today that could be repaired by a touch of God. I wonder what's happened in our lives today that as we come through this Christmas season, we can say, you know something, I'm really grateful that God came to us. He is the hope of the broken world. And that means he's hope for all of us. Our Father, thank you for the privilege we have of opening your word and studying.